Hey everyone, it's Tim Nelson here. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This podcast is my personal take as it relates to our team's activities focused on congenital heart disease. My day-to-day experience with the largest dedicated team focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease was founded at Mayo Clinic by the Todd and Karen Wanick Family Program. This team is accountable to the development of new products that aims to cure congenital heart disease. Thanks for joining the team. It's my privilege today to have our visitor with us, Jessica Lindbergh, who is the founder of the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation. And uh, we're excited to talk all things today. Um, Really excited to have you today, Jessica. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Everybody knows you, but uh, for those of us that need a fresh reminder, tell us about yourself a little bit and, and how you got entered into this world of congenital heart disease. I am an advocate and a social entrepreneur. I, I do some writing and speaking, and I'm the mom to four boys, my oldest son named Ethan that you mentioned, and he was born in 2005 with um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He was also um, one of the earliest kids to have a fetal cardiac intervention. So that was done um, when he was 20 weeks old. And, you know, he had a lot of long hospital stays. And I got to see up close and personal, not only my story, but the story and the experiences of so many families. And that has always touched me as the personal component to this illness and the way that it impacts families. And um, so I've been a part of a couple nonprofits and philanthropically involved in directly supporting families since about 2008 in the community. And um, again, they've really been, I always say this, and this, I kind of, this is one of the things I believe the most is that we can't always change people's circumstances. We can't always change their outcomes. We don't have a magic wand as, you know, my kids always say to me, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? You know, mine would be to heal people. I would love to just take a magic wand as I'm sure you would and just tap them on the head and all would be well. But you know, we can't always do that physically, but I think we can always change people's experience. And that has been something that has stayed with me all these years is how do we change these families' experiences? Because this is a lifelong experience for them, whether their child lives for, you know, five minutes or, you know, 50 years, it it changes the DNA of who people are. Well, that's a great mission, I think. So I can tell you that you have changed the experience for many recently. Um, you uh, had this viral video that went crazy um, in the last uh, in the month or so. I think it was in February you maybe launched that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell us about this video. This was a really remarkable success, I think. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, so Bowen Hammett came to our September fundraising event, and I've known the Hammetts for years. They're great people. And we finally were able to coordinate schedules and get Bowen to come sing. And one of the songs that he sang was Heartstrong. And he's, he wrote that song actually after I sent him a t-shirt before one of his heart caps. And so we, we did the, you know, they were at the fundraising event. We had a great time. It was the end of the night. And we're like, hey, let's do something fun together for Heart Month. And we have a mutual friend who has done, you know, uh, video production and directing and for both the Hammets and for the foundation. So we got them involved and we're like, let's do a music video. And and our goal was really, we we wanted to raise awareness because it was heart month. So that was important, but we wanted to show hope and we wanted to show the spirit of these kids, which we think is just so awesome. And we wanted people to be able to see that piece of it. So yes, educate people, but but, you know, do it in a different way. I think, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about all the hard things. It's easy to show the difficult pictures, but we also want to show the life. These kids have a lot of life. So 
Um, it was extremely successful. And honestly, it was a lot of people working together. It wasn't just us. We really mobilized the community on the back end and asked people to help us and to share it. A lot of organizations we reached out to. So it was a complete community event. I can't take credit for how great it was. Um, everyone was involved. And it just kind of goes to show if you can get people together against a single you know, idea, it's very powerful. No, I thought it was remarkable. So tell us a little bit more about Bowen, you said. You said Bowen wrote the song. But do does everybody realize who Bowen is and, and how old this individual is? Yeah, Bowen is nine. Um, and he was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome also. And um, Bowen's dad, Matt, is is a singer-songwriter. And so he's been very successful at, as a singer-songwriter. So Bowen has picked that up and has some of that natural talent from his dad. And um, they've really helped him to cultivate that, which is really, really cool. And he's he's really a sweet kid. He's his smile is um, a little shy, but he's but he he you can tell when he's singing. He he really relishes in it and loves it, and I think loves to do it with his dad. I've seen a couple of videos because after your video, I went and dug into um, the Hammonds again. I know their story. I've never met them, um, but I you went. Should have and, them on the podcast. They're I'd, great. I would love yeah. to do that. Um, and and Bowen, I I was like blown away by how talented this kid is mm -hmm. and how his stage presence and I just the videos that are out there about it just it's amazing uh, it's incredible and it's a great example of how many of these kids are so heart strong is a perfect word for that. I, when I watched Bowen sing at the event, I mean, I just cried because it was such a beautiful moment of of just watching a kid. And, and, you know, I know how much he's gone through. I can picture the things that he's been through and, and have had many conversations with his mom about that and to see him up there singing and to just see, I mean, the whole crowd was on their feet. Everyone was clapping. And at the end we put the lyrics up on the screen and we invited people to join in. And it was, I was one of the most powerful moments and it was just so joy filled, which is, you know, we do all these things for our kids because we want them to thrive. Like we don't, we don't put them through all the stuff so we can sit in hospitals. We, we do this so that we can experience joy and we can see them develop their talents and we can inspire other people. And so that moment to me was probably one of my favorite moments of that I've experienced in, in doing the work that I've done, to be honest. That's amazing. Um, Jessica, you're an amazing person. Just to listen to you explain and describe that moment and for me to know, as most people do, your story, um, for you to be engaged and to have that perspective with everything you've gone through is uh, is pretty inspirational to, to many other people as well. Tell people a little bit more about Ethan um, and, um, and, and your snapshot of that journey because this is a journey that is is probably more common than we want to admit sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, probably a far greater um, challenges and grief involved than any of us can possibly imagine from the outside. And yet here you are being a, an advocate and a, and a cheerleader and a spokesperson and a leader. Um, it's pretty inspirational. Well, thank you. I mean, Ethan was a great kid and um, he made it easy to want to you know, be part of this community and to do the things that we have done and are doing. Um, he was a really happy kid. He was super joyful. He loved music. Um, he loved to make people laugh. He, you know, and, and I hear this about a lot of a lot of kids in the community, but he just had a spark about him. He had something in him, and and 
I sometimes believe that maybe he knew he didn't have a lot of time and he was just going to suck the life and joy out of life that he could. I mean, he would tell me a hundred times a day that he loved me. I mean, he was not afraid to tell people how he felt about them. Um, he didn't want to waste his time really like watching TV or just doing things that kids would do. He wanted to be engaged with people. Um, and he just, he taught me so much about life and about what's important um, and really redirected us as a family and my husband and I as a couple of what is important and what is worthy of our time. And um, he also introduced me to this community of people and I am just constantly amazed, touched, honored to be in the sacred stories of these families. I mean, these people are just your neighbors. I say this all the time. I'm like, this is the lady you're checking out to next to to at Target when we can go back to doing that. You know, these are the people that you pass in the grocery store. They're they're the, the mom that you pass on the street when you're pulling out of the school. These are normal people who have dreams and hopes and all these things for their life. And then they're they're put into the situation and they rise to the occasion. And I'm continuously amazed despite finances education you know you can say all these things about people about you know the information that they have I have seen some of people which you would consider in the most dire circumstances financially in their life find a way to get the best care for their kids and I just think the love is so powerful that 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 these families have for their kids and and the ends that they're willing to go to is it's it's amazing so I imagine a kid like Ethan, who spent probably the majority, um, a significant part anyways, of his life in a hospital, he became an inspiration and role model for nurses and physicians and respiratory therapists and phlebotomists. Um, a kid like this I've seen before where um, the medical team gravitates to the room. Was that the case for Ethan? Oh, yeah. I mean, he... Um was known to blast music from his room and uh, especially Bob Marley, which he was a big fan. And so he would blast the music and people would come by and just hang out. I mean, just literally come in the room. Sometimes he would have concerts. He'd open the door to his room. And um, we actually, he had this like microphone that we had gotten him. It was a it played music and had a microphone and he would, he wasn't afraid. <laughs> he, always he was not afraid to get in front of people. He did not have a good singing voice, you know, um, my husband and I were like, man, we would have really had to invest in some voice lessons. He, you know, but he wasn't afraid. He was so willing to express himself um, and do things that brought him joy. And I think people just gravitated towards that. He loved to joke and and pull pranks. And, you know, he was in the hospital enough at the la his last run where the nurses would give him their phone. You know, they have these blue phones. I don't know what color they are other places, but um he would prank doctors like during rounds and they'd get calls. They'd keep, they, I mean, we have a couple stories where they'd be completely annoyed. They're getting a call and it's Ethan, you know, and um, he just brought a levity, you know, to some really tough times. It's incredible that a five-year-old, a six-year-old can, can teach us uh, more about life than, than anybody else has ever taught us. Um, I can relate to that at, at some level with with other kids that I've personally known. I, I never had the privilege of meeting Ethan, but I can see Ethan's story in in your in your story. Um, how do they do this? How do these kids have this great sense of purpose and great sense of of life? I mean, what what's makes that possible? You know, I don't know that I have the answer, but I do think that on some level 
maybe they know they don't have as much time as the rest of us. I also think, you know, I think like anything, when you have something difficult, you know, your priorities get pretty clear. You kind of can get rid of all the extra stuff. And I think that they, they've experienced life in a way that many people haven't. And I think that they, they know what matters, you know? And so I think there's a, I think there's a combination that's a sixth, sixth sense, if you will. I don't think maybe it's something that we can, you know, quantify, but I think it's a, a part of their spirits. I think they're, these kids have these tremendous spirits and Ethan did. I mean, to me, that was one of the most powerful things about him was his resilient spirit that for me, I still feel around me, you know, even though he's not physically here. Yeah, I mean, he can have such a profound impact on the short time he did have. But what's even more impressive is he has such a profound impact even when he's not here to this day and to everything that you're doing and to the things that we're talking about right now. So I know we are all grateful in some weird way of of having these kids in our lives. Um, and it's a, it's a privilege. I think we, you and I have a shared perspective on that. Tell me a bit more about, I guess it was 2004 then when uh, you and your husband were living this perfect, magical life. And then tell me about that and then how it got thrusted into into the world that we live today. Yeah, we were uh, newly married, living in downtown Chicago. He was um, a new attorney at the time. I was in MBA night school working in marketing and advertising in the city. We had great friends. We traveled. We did all the things that people in their late 20s making a little bit of money and having a lot of time on their hands do. And we had a great time. We had um, a lot of fun, a lot of great friends. And um, in 2005, early 2005, um, I was driving to Chicago O'Hare Airport for actually to go for Christmas, to go to, to go to see my family and to go on a trip. And my doctor called and said, you know, you just had some blood work done and you have a a, a little bit of a marker for trisomy 18, which is a very terrible diagnosis and they're really incompatible with life. Um, And so she's like, you need to come and do do an amnio right now. And I was like, well, I'm driving to the airport and I haven't talked to my husband. I, I think I was just so shocked and I didn't even know how to respond to her. So what we ended up doing is a level two ultrasound at the hospital after Christmas. And that's when we found out about Ethan's um, evolving hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And the doctor that diagnosed us just um, said, you know, I think he might be a candidate for a fetal cardiac intervention. This is something that they're doing at Boston Children's. Um, He still has blood flow through his aortic valve. You should investigate. So we did investigate that. And it turned out he was a candidate for that. And so we were the 30th family to have a fetal cardiac intervention um, when he was 22 weeks gestation. Wow. What went through your head when you got that level two ultrasound, the diagnosis? And what was the first thought you remember after this new world was revealed to you? I mean, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I mean, the doctor who gave the diagnosis, he was a very kind man and he was very gentle in the way that he talked to us, which I really appreciated that in hindsight. Um, But, you know, I think it's just shock. It's like, what is this about? You know, and and at the moment, I didn't even understand the gravity of what they were telling me because I didn't know. I mean, I'm the oldest of five kids. Everyone's healthy. I didn't grow up around people with sick kids. Like I, I had no idea this world existed. So at that moment in time, I couldn't even imagine what 
I was in for, you know, but, um, and you know, my husband and I were both doers and mobilizers. So, you know, educated people, we had the ability to contact different people and we weren't afraid to. So we just started educating ourselves and figuring out we were willing to do anything as, as, as parents are, that's what love does to you, right? You're willing to do anything for people that you love. And so we just kind of went into, to, to figuring out what to do next. You probably strike me as one of these couples that were of the mindset. We're going to learn about it. We're going to figure it out and we're going to tackle this thing and we're going to solve this thing. Oh yeah. Um, is, is that kind of epitomize how you guys approach this? Oh yeah. I think um, we were like, we're smart enough. We can figure this out. Like we'll find the best place and the doctor and we'll go there and we'll, you know, do whatever we have to do to, and it'll be okay. You know, um, I think that's a very normal reaction that people have to any illness that they're faced with. I think it's, it's, it's what we do, but it's also how we were wired. So, um, yeah, you're right. So you found Boston, you had this, this hope that, that the, um, that the aortic procedure would be successful for those of people that are wondering what that is, what, that essentially is, is, well, Ethan was in utero uh, with the ultrasound. You It was diagnosed that there was a decreased blood flow through the left side of the heart. And there's an ongoing effort within um, Boston as being the world leader in this, where they dilate the aorta while the fetus is in the womb. And when they dilate that, um, they increase the blood flow. The hope is that that will um, increase blood flow and allow the left ventricle to grow and with the hope that maybe a biventricular circulation is feasible, where without that, the baby would be born and maybe not have a chance at anything other than a, a single ventricle palliation. So obviously avoiding single ventricle palliation is a really remarkable thing and a great goal to have. Um, but an in utero procedure is pretty daunting and intimidating, especially if there's only been 20 some people before you. Tell me about that moment when you were debating or contemplating or just had clarity that this is the thing you're going to do? I mean, I think uh, by that time, you know, I was diagnosed at 20 weeks, about 20 weeks. So this was, I had this done at 22 weeks. So I had enough time to read enough online. Um, there was this HLHS Yahoo group. <laughs> this okay. is like Facebook. Um, so I think I had gotten involved in there. And funny enough, I'm still in touch with some of those families today. I mean, wow. they're still friends. It's crazy. Um, and so I, I started looking around and knew enough to know this was not a good diagnosis. This was, this was, this was pretty, pretty tough. And so, um, you know, we asked the questions there was to ask, what are the risks? What have you seen? And, and it was a very small sample size, right, of patients before us. But I kind of, I, I, I was at the point where I was like, you know, if this can help him, um, I want to do it. And there's what, you know, the statistically, what are the chances of him dying at birth anyways? And you kind of look at those and then you look at the, the, the data that they have at the moment around survival for the fetal intervention. And we just kind of used those numbers and our gut, our gut and said, let's, let's give it a go. Let's try. As a sponsor as a physician scientist as somebody that has consented a family to do something experimentally um for the first time um i i will never ever forget that moment where i've described it many times before uh, chuck chuck and heather know who i'm talking about right now 
Um, and uh, I describe it that the mother in this case looked me in the back of the eyeball when she asked me, is this safe? And I, I, I describe it as looking in the back of the eyeball because it was one of the few times where I f truly felt like somebody was looking into my inner workings to try to look at every possible hint of, is this guy telling me the truth, the full truth, the, you know, is he, is he too biased to be blinded by this? Is it, you know, I just, I will never forget that being on the other side of the table from what you're describing, Jessica, of a mother looking me in the back of the eyeball and asking that question when, you know, you've never done it before. And I know that, you know that, and yet we think it's the right thing to do. Uh, that's a, I can't even describe it, honestly, what that feels like to be in that room at that time. Um, it sounds like you had a level of clarity in your gut um, at that moment that, that really guided you. I did. I, you know, I could do a whole podcast with you about decision making and innovation. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I, I also think that, um, you know, the team of people working on it at the time were very optimistic and they had had some wins. I think as a physician and even now in the position that I'm in, you know, working with families, you're, you're always as confident or as least confident as your last success or failure. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're on a high from a win, like you're going to recommend it, you know, and if you've had a tragic loss, you're, you're a little bit more reticent to do so. So I think that, um, and that goes into a whole other conversation, right, about biases and, and how we think about making decisions, which I think is a, a really important conversation to have in this community, especially around innovation, which is needed. Um, so I think that also influenced our our willingness to do it. So the gravity of the diagnosis, the, you know, successes that they had experienced, um, those kind of went together to make the decision. And I did trust my gut in that moment. Um, but it was scary. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I was anesthetized and intubated. Um, Ethan was anesthetized as a fetus. You know, they're like, if you don't feel the baby move at this hour after your procedure, I mean, it was, it was, there was, it was not a joke. It was, it was a very serious thing to choose to do. I have a deep appreciation for the pioneers of the world like you. Um, I've written about this and talked about this before because I've been in that room and consented a person for the first time to collect cells from their body to deliver it into their heart muscle and to do something for the first time when none of us know, truly know what's going to happen. And how do you have that informed conversation? How do you make sure that the families understand fully what we understand but we're doing it because we're hopeful. We're doing it because we think we have a shot at doing things better. Um, and then time plays out. And then you replay those stories over and over in your head. And and as I can tell you as a physician, we've had bad outcomes in some of the things that we've done. And there's not very many days. Um, there's definitely not weeks that don't go by where I revisit those decisions and I rethink it. And I, and I wonder, did I talk about it the right way? Did I do the right thing? Um, I mean, my God, if I'm doing that as a third party removed from the core of it, I can only imagine what a mother goes through with that thought process on an hour by hour basis for the rest of their life. And I worry about that 
when we ask pioneers like you to be part of things. How do you deal with that? What what does that feel like to you today? And I know this is another whole podcast probably as well, but I'm just curious of how do you how do you process that innovation decision then, knowing that the outcome was not ideal long term for you? How do you think about that today? You know, I think um, I mean that's a, a really good question. And I, I think at the time that I did it, you know, I, I think what's what's really difficult is HLHS is a bad disease. I mean, we all agree with that. And we would love to have seen it make more advances than it has at this point. Um, On the other side of things, I always say that I stood on the shoulders of families before me who agreed to things that, you know, they didn't have a good outcome. I got seven years with Ethan because brave families, brave doctors chose to do something that probably didn't work a bunch of the time. You know, and I think one of the things that we forget in this community and, you know, it kind of ticks me off sometimes, honestly, like moms are on social media. We need more research. We need this. We need that. It's like the fact that you have your child in your home right now is a tremendous gift. And I think we need to sometimes need to step back and realize what shoulders we're all standing upon as doctors, as parents. So I think that's one one piece. I think with Ethan's case, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, obviously, and doing the fetal intervention, he ended up having modified stage surgery. So he had a um, he had a sano shunt, um, but he didn't. He had his atrial septum was left partially open, partially closed because they were. I mean, this is a you know they're for, forcing blood flow through the left heart. The same thing. Um, then he had so he had a few different variations of of the surgeries that he had. And I think, to be honest with you, I was so focused on figuring out how to get that left ventricle to grow, wanting to give him a future. I mean, we did this because we wanted him to have a future. What I couldn't see at the time, and I don't know if the doctors could see it, I think um, was that we were also putting ourselves in a path that we couldn't get out of. And um, I didn't understand that at the time. I understand that now. And I, I think that is also one of the dangers of innovation is that we can become so focused on a hopeful outcome that um, we don't often enough assess where we're at at the moment. You know, here I am today. Um, am I burning the bridge yet? Am I not burning the bridge? You know, and I think making that assessment is very difficult, especially when you're the person invested as a parent or as a physician in making this go, right? And so to have to pull yourself back and say, well, you know, we actually failed this time and we're gonna, we're gonna abort this effort and we're gonna go over here. Um, that was something that um, didn't happen in Ethan's case. And I think there were opportunities, now I can see them along the way to change courses. Um, I also think it takes a lot of courage for doctors and parents to look at things objectively like that and um, to to pull the ripcord and say no. And um, I think that was also part of Ethan's story that um, people struggled with that. And I wish they didn't. Um, and I wish maybe I could have seen things a little bit differently. I think... Um, you become very close with your doctors too. They become like your family. I mean, you experience things together that your closest family has no idea what that looks like. And so there's this bond and I think it is really important, but
but also sometimes I think it impacts the objectivity that we can have around the decisions that we're making. So it's very complicated and I'm not, um, I don't have all the answers. And I, I really do think the genesis of fetal intervention, just like what you're doing with, you know, is we want to do better. We want to find a way to give these kids a longer and healthier life. And that is always good. I think the challenge is when you get into the individual stories and you have to make calls along the way. And I've always been a, a very big proponent. I've never been successful <laughs> implementing it at any center because, um, you know, people want to do what they want to do. But I think we need a different system of checks and balances. And I think we need to be willing as physicians to phone friends more often and say, hey, I don't know if this is right. I'm not sure. And be willing to tell families, hey, I don't know if we should keep going with this. And like I said, it's very complicated. Um, and I, how do I dealt with it? Um, I've talked to a lot of families reach out, reach out to me about decision making. I think that's, I, I appreciate now I'm at a place where I can, I see things very clearly and I can comment on those things um, and I'm willing to. Um, but there was a lot of anger a lot of guilt and a lot of anger for a long time. And, um, you know, to touch on the subject of grief, my husband and I worked with a, I call him a grief coach, has become a good friend of ours for 18 months after Ethan died every Tuesday night. I mean, talk about investment of time and resources to do that. But we knew if we didn't unearth this thing that we had lived, it would eat us alive. And I think that's one of the pieces that we don't, probably recognize enough, even families whose kids do well. I mean, they've experienced so much. You've touched on a lot of things there. I'm sitting <laughs> no, here I'm listening sorry. and thinking we have at least three more podcasts to do together. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I can't help but, but spend a little bit more time thinking about what you talk about with the physician and family communication. Um, you know, I, I come at it from a different perspective than you, obviously. I, I, I have two kids, a loving family. They're all healthy. I, I have no personal firsthand experience in anything that you're talking about. What I do have personal firsthand experiences is being on the other side of the table, as I said, of consenting families. I've been to funerals. I've been to funerals uh, from infants to older kids. I've had colleagues tell me, uh, don't get too close to these families. Um, you, you won't be objective. You, you, you got to stay distance. I think that's hogwash. I think right. it's complete crap. Um, it's my opinion that, um, you know, I grew up with a, uh, a stepfather who's a physician that was a rural family physician that, you know, as a physician, you're part of the family and, and families grieve together, celebrate together. I go to the funerals of the families that I, that I've been connected to and know I go to them. I, I grieve with them and yes, there's, there's blind sides to that, right? You do get less quote unquote objective, but you also get much more committed to trying to make the right decision the way you would make a decision as a family. And I think there's power in that. I think there's clarity in that. I think that there's, there's, shared responsibility at a different level. I, as a physician, get really frustrated with a system that says, here's the three options, Jessica, mm -hmm. you pick them. Yeah. What the heck is that all about? Mm -hmm. Here's three options. And, and one of them is good. And all of them are going to lead to a bad outcome at some point. Mm -hmm. And so you, as the mom, get to decide which of the three poisons you're going to pick. And you, as a mom, get to 
live with the consequences of that poison for the rest of your existence. And I, as a physician, did my objective job by giving you the options, giving you the stats, and and forcing you to make that decision independent of my better judgment. That's not right either, right? And so you can you can think of the extremes, but it's so, so hard to know where in the middle is the right place to be um, and, and how to be that physician-patient relationship. Um, I don't have it figured out either, Jessica, uh, but I can tell you that that's been my approach, like it, hate it, agree with it, disagree with it. Um, I have chosen to be very intimately involved as a family member almost with these families and, and, and live it with them. And, and, uh, and because of that, I've, I've chosen to bear the burden of that at times um, that, um, you know, it is what it is. And I, I don't know how else to, to describe it, but I think there's a lot to unpack there um, between your perspective and my perspective and and how to model that in a, in perhaps a better way. I, I think there's a lot. And like you said, there's not any perfect answer. But I will say that everyone who took care of Ethan loved him yeah. and wanted, sincerely wanted the very best for him. I mean, sincerely wanted him to run out of that hospital, you know, as healthy as can be and loved our family. So I and those people to this day are still some of the most special people in my life. I don't I think that. I do agree. It's a bunch of crap to say, you know, don't get too close to your patients or don't, you know, don't, I think that's not what this is about. I think the beauty of life is walking with each other and carrying each other's burdens and getting in there with people. And that is where we find the most beauty. And, you know, life is, we like to say things are all good or all bad, right? We like to live in this binary sort of way of thinking, but what if it's not really that way? And I think that is, that's where I am today is that life is joy and pain. It's easy and hard. It's always going to be, and we can say that's all good or that's all better. We can say, this is what it is. How am I going to grow through it? What am I going to learn from it? And Ethan modeled that for me. I mean, he, you know, he went through some of the most awful things. Like I've seen every terrible cardiac ICU procedure that you can think of. I mean, he was never on dialysis, but I've seen, I've seen everything, you know, and yet he um, was very joyful. I mean, it was a week before he died. He said, I'm going to run out of pool when I get home and invite all my friends. I mean, he had plans for his life and, um, I think you just have to keep taking one step and then the next step. And I remember sitting in drinking coffee with a fellow heart mom when Ethan was very sick. And she said to me, she goes, you know, any decision you make in love is the right decision. And I was honestly pissed that you said that to me because I was like, I've made all these decisions in love and I am in a bad place. But I will say where I'm sitting today, I believe that 100% is true. And I think that everything you chose for Ethan every recommendation that people that were intimately involved and loved him made for him is because they truly wanted good things for him. So what do we do now when you have an outcome, right? As a physician, you've gotten close. And as a parent, you have outcome that you didn't really want and you're grieving. I think we have to learn from each other. And I think that there is tremendous gold in this community that we do not access. And I think that is that of families and patients who haven't had a good outcome. We can learn so much from them. And what I've seen is parents, their kids die and they just leave the community, right? I mean, it's too yeah. painful. I feel like that sometimes, honestly. I feel like I'm out, you know, it's this is too hard. I think the challenge is that 
we have to help those people figure through their, their experience. And I will say one of the gifts that Eric and I received is we had doctors who took care of Ethan who were willing to have really hard conversations with us after he yeah. died, like really hard ones where we knocked heads and we went there with each other. And I think it not only helped us heal, but it helped them heal, you know, and we had, we had to rebuild relationships with people and we both were committed to doing that. And still I see these people today and we give each other big hugs and we have this bond and, but we were willing to go there and they were willing to go there and not every doctor is willing to do that. And not every family is willing to do that. But, um, we have to mine, we have to dig deeper than we're digging right now because we can learn things and we can do better. And that's what this is all about, right? Ethan's life is continuously important because of what it teaches every child's story, every kid, every family. I don't care if you live for five minutes or 50 years, your story matters and you can teach us something. And we need to do a better job of figuring out how to learn from people. Well, I can promise you, we um, as a consortium, we as a group of like-minded people um, are committed to doing better, like what you said. And and I think part of the reason for doing these podcasts, part of the reasons building this community is to do exactly what you just said and figure out how to do what you just said, of learn together, um, grow. Recently, I've been saying that a lot, um, that I don't lose. We don't lose. Our team doesn't lose. We either win or we learn, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that perspective, right? I love the fact that we're not going to lose in this. If we're, our hearts aren't in the right spot, if we're doing it for the right reasons, if we're communicating in the right way, we're going to win or we're going to learn from it and, and learn how to win next time, but we're not going to lose. And I think that's what you're articulating here. And we don't have it figured out, Jessica. We definitely have a lot to learn together. And, and there's a lot of things that need to improve to inspire innovation, to do innovation in the appropriate way, to inspire pioneers like yourself, to inspire clinicians to be pioneers. Um, it's really easy to just do standard of care, evidence-based medicine, and do what's been proven a hundred times and, and keep out of the legal system because we are doing what we know today. That's a cop-out. That's, that's not good enough. Um, if we're not pushing, uh, if we're not going to do something different, we're not going to do something better. We got to do something different to make the outcomes better, and and that's that's a commitment of both of us to to figure out how to make. So, gosh, I, I'm so deeply grateful for you sharing your perspective on innovation and how you went from a clarity to have, being gone through the grief of of second guessing that. And I, I would like to think about how to unpack that more. Tell me more about the um, Ethan Lindbergh foundation what's your mission what's your purpose what's your goals where where do you see this going in the next one five ten years from now and and ultimately i'm asking because i always want to know what we can do to amplify and help mm -hmm. so we started the foundation um you know truly i didn't know people started organizations after their kids died i just i guess i wasn't paying attention but i never really thought i and you know, people will say to me, oh, this is so great. You do this for Ethan. I'll be really honest with you. Ethan doesn't need us to do this. He doesn't, if we stop doing it tomorrow, he's fine. You know, we're fine. We really wanted to do it because we wanted, we had, so we lived away from home for 13 months. So we paid our mortgage at home and we rented apartments because we wanted to keep our family together. And um, 
my husband was trying to keep a job, so we couldn't like just be in a shared community space of a Ronald McDonald house, which I think is great. Just doesn't work for a long-term family situation. Um, and so we were like this, you know, and we um, fired through a lot of money to be able to do what we did for Ethan. And it was the, the impact of that has shifted our family. It will forever, you know, um, and we're not sad about that. We did it, you know, we do it again, but we really started to think, you know, we get, there has to be a little bit more of a realization about how this disease is impacting the family. You know, I, um, so, so it was really about changing the family experience. And, and so what we started out doing is having some apartments and, and housing families, giving financial assistance. We funded some, some research around the biventricular repair program and who's a good candidate for a BIV, like how we need to retrospectively look at these kids and take the data that we have so that we can do better next time. And we really wanted to support the let's learn from what we have experienced and let's do it better next time. Um, and so that, and we, we fund some music therapy because Ethan loved music and you got to have joy. I mean, heck, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring joy. So that's how we started. Um, and you know, a lot of those things are things that we're still doing today. We also recently did, um, a family survey around the financial impact of congenital heart disease. So we did that in early 2000. Um, gosh, we did that about a year ago. It was late 2018. Um, and, we had like eight, over 800 families. I mean, we thought initially when we did it, we were working with a university and they said, if you get 150 responses, you're going to be statistically significant. And I was like, okay, that's great. You know, so we kind of rallied the troops again, like we did for the video and or before we did the video and we had like over 800 families respond. And so we went through the quantitative data for that. We actually just gave a grant um, this year to go through the qualitative data. So it's kind of looking at this through the lifespan of families and their experiences. I think that's where I'm at today is like I, you know, we're in this crazy time of coronavirus and it's a really difficult time for nonprofits. And anyone who tells you that's not true is lying. It's difficult for everybody. And but I also think it's a really um, opportunity to pivot and to see you know, it's easy to do what you've always done, right? It's easy to just keep plodding along. It's different to say, okay, this is what we've accomplished. This is what we've done. Now, where do we want to go? And where are the needs? And one of the reasons we started the foundation is we were like, we want to fill in a gap. We want to take something that's missing in the family experience. So for us, it was housing, um, some research that needed to be done for a specific population of patients, and then, um, you know, being actionable and supporting families more financially and more significantly than other places had done before. And that was our initial, it was gap filling. And so I'm asking myself, I'll be very frank and honest. I'm asking myself right now today, we've had the conversation this week, where are the gaps now? And we evolve as people, right? I mean, I've grown in the last six years and I've worked through a lot of things. And and, I, and so it's like, where can we fill in a gap now? And we've also always been very clear. We're not going to, we don't want to be all things. Like I think in this community and I have talked to people in other disease communities it's like somebody wants to rise to the top and be all things you know I'm not going to go to Washington DC and 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 legislate that's just not my gift I'm not interested in doing it I think it's great when people do it and I support them um you know I think I'm you know I'm not going to argue about what STS data should be where and how all that should go. I think though it's important. I'm happy to weigh in on it, but I'm not going to spend my time there because that's not my gift. And so um, we want to stay in our lane. I think everybody has lanes and we are, we are successful as people, as humans, when we say, what are we passionate about? What am I good at? And what am I, and I want to go there. And so 
um, you know, this emerging research on the impact of families, I think is something we're very interested in. Continuing to support families financially is something that we're important. But I, I have to be honest with you, I was at um, a meeting for a different disease group that I was invited to who has been, they've been awesome to, to kind of shepherd us. And I was sitting in the room and I was thinking about nonprofits, right? And I was thinking about how we help people. And I was thinking, you know, if I give family $2,000, that's great. And that stops the bleeding. That's like, you know, slapping on a thing. We stop the bleeding for a month. But that does nothing to help them in five years or three years have the tools to weather this storm. And I think that's where I'm at personally. I'm asking myself, how do we help people become better people because of what they've experienced? How do we help them grow and be leaders in their communities and their families? How do we help them have even better families, marriages, you know, everything because of this, which I think is possible. And um, I'm really interested in that more mid to long term help for people and, and reshifting their their hearts and minds. So I don't know what that looks like for us, but I think that that's where we are headed in some way. And I'm being very transparent with you because these are things that I've been thinking about. Um, I think that people have different gifts and I think we should run in our lane and use our gifts. And that's how we're going to make this community better. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Um, we recently talked to Greg Olson, who I'm sure you yeah. know. And, I have never uh, personally met him, but I know who he is. Yes. He's, if you listen to his podcast that we recently did, he's, he's as you are very articulate, very passionate. And, and his tagline out of that, that conversation was find your role. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think that's what you're articulating here. We run a team of about 60 people spread across the country. And we talk all the time that we are a cross-functional team of professionals, a team of teams. Um, you know, everybody has their role. Everybody's got to stay in their swim lane. We talk about that a lot. Uh, we got to trust our neighbor. We got to trust our teammate that's better at something than we are. I can't do it all. You can't do it all. And I think that's um, that's a challenge. That's a challenge to to manage and get together. But this pie is huge, right? This pie of congenital heart defects is huge, and and the roles and the team members to to fill in all the gaps is very diverse. I find it really fascinating, Jessica, that you know if you think of if I just throw some words out there and imagine what you think about breast cancer, colon cancer cystic fibrosis, multiple myeloma, uh, diabetes. You, you throw these terms out there and we all have visions. We all have marketing things that pop into our head. Let me throw another one out there. Congenital heart disease. It's fascinating to me. One in a hundred have the most horrific outcomes that you can possibly imagine and we don't have a national platform, an international platform that can give the intensity that's needed to focus and solve. Um, we got to change that. I mean, that that's my new mission for the next decade is, uh, is how do we band together? This isn't about any one person rising to the top. This isn't about any one king. Uh, this is about a committed family that finds our swim lanes and trusts each other and really rise the whole community up to tackle things. Because if we don't do that, Jessica, it's my belief, the gap is without a, without a converged community that can tackle the biggest problems, we're going to remain local and we're gonna remain 
incremental and we're going to, we're going to do amazing stuff, but we're going to put band-aids on. We're not going to fundamentally cure. We're not going to fundamentally change because we're not going to have the intensity, the, the resources or the vision to actually fundamentally change the trajectory. Um, and I think that's what we're all on the journey together with right now, trying to figure out, you know, what's the next step. So I appreciate your honesty and transparently transparency, as you said, because I think that's true for us all. I, you know, we, we struggle with these concepts ourselves and none of us have the answers in isolation, but I do think that the exercise we just went through with, with thinking about these diseases and, and the things that pop into your head is the problem. That's the gap. I agree. And I think, you know, um, I'm a marketer at heart. You know, I love to tell stories and create things that look cool and inspire people. That's what brings me personally joy. And those are my skills. Um, I don't think we've done that in the heart community well enough. I think we talk to each other a lot. We talk to, and that was one of the reasons we did the video the way we did it with um, Bowen is like, we're like, we're not just going to create something that says that, you know, that shows every last horrible picture of a kid so that, you know, we can just all say how bad it is. It's like, we want to do something that gets attention, that's entertaining, that is um, maybe somebody who doesn't have a kid with congenital heart disease would be like, oh, look at how awesome this is. Look how great these kids are. We have done, and I think it's because we have, we've siloed, I mean, this is another podcast, but we've siloed organizations. I think egos get involved. Definitely. I think centers, I, I mean, I'm going to say it, centers um, want everyone at their center. You know, they're not team players. They're just not. And so, you know, you have money involved. The, treating children with congenital heart disease is, is, a, is a business like any, any healthcare business is. And I think what's different about, I would say, somebody like me is I don't have anything left to lose. You know, I've already lost it. Like Ethan's not here, but I will like, and I say this all the time, I will be damned if someone tells me how my story is going to go. I'm going to decide, you know, I'm going to decide what I'm going to create through this. I see it as a complete gift. I see my story and my experience. I would, I, I feel like Ethan launched me as a human being. And so I just want to see people have the best outcomes that they can. I want to see People feel loved and included. Um, and, I, you know, I struggle a lot with the heart community in that way. And, I mean, I'll just say it. I don't go to a lot of heart community things because I don't want to talk in circles about things anymore. I want to impact people and, I'll, and I want to inspire people. And I want to um, say, hey, we can do this better. I think every community needs people to lead. And I, I just don't think... I think we're thinking, I think we're uh, majoring in the minors, frankly. Yeah, no, I, I think, look, you are making a huge impact. You're doing an amazing job. All of us have seen the pictures on the Facebook pages where you see a million bad pictures of hor horrific stories, which fine, that's important. And that's important for families to grieve. I, I, I sort of get that. But then every 10th one, you see a heart strong photo. Mm -hmm. uh, you see a have a heart from Greg Olson. You I mean, the, the people like you um, are, are making a huge difference because you're inserting that positive message. You're inserting that that trajectory forward. And so um, don't don't ever think that you're not having a massive impact in a unique way, because I, I know firsthand you are. Um, but also know that we uh, we get a chance and opportunity here to to amplify it. None of us have anything else to gain or lose. Um, and, and so we're all in it together. So. 
um, we're here to we're here to amplify. Um, there's definitely going to be some offline conversations of what we can tackle together, Jessica. So um, we're in it to win this thing. A um, couple probing questions here, if you don't mind. Those are all the easy questions. All right. Here's one question I, I really, really find insightful. Um, if you went back to 2005 on the day you were diagnosed, on that moment we talked about a little bit earlier, and you had the chance as you sit here today to give yourself advice, what would you tell yourself in 2005 as you know it today? I would tell myself that um, you are in the greatest ride of your life and um, embrace all of it. Take it all in. Um, enjoy every moment and ask continuously ask yourself what you can learn. I would tell myself to get a couple more opinions from medically, but I would also tell myself to give myself grace that um, my best was good enough. Wow. You would have um, you would have made a big impact on yourself in earlier days. Um, the wisdom you have today is uh, something I'm sure you wish you would have had. But I guess we're all only as good as our experience, and we all only know what we know because we've experienced it. But I guess uh, you're doing exactly that by communicating your story to other families. Um, wow, Jessica, it's a it's a privilege to hear your story. Um, it's amazing to see what you guys are doing. Um, I'm confident there's lots we can do together uh, as we go forward, and and I'm just grateful for the I think six podcasts we're probably up to now going forward. We're, we got a lot to talk about in the future here. That's awesome. You're doing great work. I think it's really important to use you know, technology and communication, bring people together to, to see where we can grow as a community and to see what we can do better. And like you said, to bring people together who have all different skills, who want to lend their voices and want to lend their energy and their talents. And you're bringing them together. And I think that's incredibly powerful. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Last question. How do you define hope? I have something interesting for you on that topic. So I have thought a lot about hope. I actually wrote about it for a whole month last month um, on an on a essay that I write. But I um, I have this for you if you don't mind if I share it. But, Please. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jerome Groupman. I have not. Have the not. Anatomy of Hope. No. Tell me. So Jerome Groupman is an oncologist, and he's written a lot of different books, a book called How Doctors Think, and this is a book called The Anatomy of Hope. And I found this book um, when Ethan was sick. I, I actually read it, but it's the best description of hope that, that I've ever seen and one that is now really how I think of hope. I think there's two ways to be hopeful. I think there's the, the rose-colored glasses hope that I think a lot of people, and we all, I, was, I had as a, as, a, as a new parent in this community. Um, and But if you don't mind if I read this to you, because I think it really says... So false hope does not recognize the risks and dangers that true hope does. False hope can lead to intemperate choices and flawed decision-making. True hope takes into account the real threats that exist and seeks to navigate the best path around. Hope, then, is the ballast that keeps us steady, that recognizes where along the path are the dangers and pitfalls that can throw us off. Hope tempers fear so we can recognize dangers and then bypass or endure them. And I think it kind of goes back to that. It's not all good or all bad. I think hope is like a balancing act. I think it keeps us, it keeps us on the in the middle path of saying, if we're in, embodying true hope, this is difficult. We don't have all the answers, 
we're going to continue walking together as you're willing to do with your patients. It's not saying we're going to beat this thing and we're going to, you know, come hell or high water, my kid's going to have a two ventricle heart. That was me, you know, in the early days. I'm going to, if I got to get in that OR myself and do something like I'm going to do it, you know, but it's learning to say, this is difficult. And it's, it goes back to the decision-making. We're going to walk this path together. We know the, we know the difficulties. We know the fears. We're going to do this together. We're going to have the skills to bypass and endure if we don't get the outcomes that we want, but we're going to continue moving forward. That's what hope is to me. The ballast concept, I will never forget that balance, the, the ballast of keeping us through the storm um, is, that's a pretty powerful concept. I will not forget that. Thank you for sharing that, Jessica. So Jessica Lindbergh, co-founder of the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation, doing amazing work. We're grateful for you sharing the story. We're going to follow up offline and we're going to follow up with some new podcasts to unpack some of these other topics that are obviously um, a much deeper conversation than we have time today for. Grateful for your time and um, excited about the future of what we have in front of us. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Tim. This was wonderful. 